Welcome to Post Break. My name is Chris Peterson, Board Secretary of the Post New York Alliance. This is our weekly discussion of all the forces shaping our industry right now. Today's topic is the people behind the board, revealing the hidden world of sound mixing. And now to introduce our moderator, dialogue and ADR supervisor, Brian Bowles. Thanks for joining us. Uh, and thank you to the uh, PNYA for hosting this. Um, so let me start by introducing myself. Uh, I'm a dialogue and ADR supervisor. I've been that for most of my career. Um, I started cutting dialogue uh, in 1996 uh, on Steve Buscemi's movie, Trees Lounge. Um, since then, I've gotten to work with directors uh, across the spectrum from documentaries with Errol Morris, uh, independent films with Jim Jarmusch and Lee Daniels, um, international blockbusters like uh, Beauty and the Beast with Bill Condon. Um, feel free to check out my IMDb page. There's uh, plenty of other listings up there. Um, I've been asked to moderate today because what I do with Dialogue and ADR uh, integrates directly with our mixers. Um, all of the editing and creative choices that I make then end up under their fingers um, uh, as they mix my work and the work of everybody else's uh, into the um, final mix that's heard. Um, just as a, for those who aren't aware, um, the film mix or the mix um, is uh, one of the last creative steps in the filmmaking process. Uh, it involves combining all of the creative decisions made by the director and the producers, the picture editor, uh, all the VFX. Um, but what it really does is combine all of the work of the different uh, elements of the sound department um, and puts them together. Uh, so that's combining dozens of uh, dialogue and ADR, production dialogue and ADR tracks, um, dozens of Foley tracks, hundreds of background and sound effects tracks, hundreds of music elements, um, and uh, combining them and crafting them into the soundscape uh, that we end up hearing in the theaters or we stream on screens uh, worldwide. Um, the mix itself can take uh, a few days, depending on the project, up to a few months, uh, depending on the scope of um, what the job is. Uh, it's a combination of very technical things, um, understanding signal paths and what EQs do and reverbs and all of these technical things within the computer, um, uh, formatting problems, uh, any of the post supers that are here, I know you've read those spec sheets and you can know how complicated those are. Um, so, uh, but also um, it's, uh, it's really an artistic craft. Um, it's, it's shaping all of these sounds together um, so that they are all mixed at their proper respective levels so that everything that needs to be heard in the moment is being properly heard. Um, we all can uh, appreciate an excellent um, car crash in a movie. You know, the thud on the impact, the tinkling of glass as it shatters, the slow-mo sounds as something is rolling over, the grit on the, 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 the pavement. But there's um, much more uh, delicate things that have to be taken care of too, things that need to be mixed seamlessly, uh, almost invisibly, um, like dialogue and ADR integrated together, um, or Foley. These are things that we know what they sound like in real life. Um, and if somehow they don't sound right, we're all very quickly aware that something doesn't sound that way. Um, so our panelists um, work very hard to mix all of these things together. Um, uh, so another thing that everybody has to deal with uh, as mixers is uh, scheduling and budgets and um, but also within that confine making the final creative choices that the director wants um, so that uh, the final mix is what everybody wants to hear. Um, uh, today we are hoping to shed some light on that creative process um, uh, and it's something that a lot of people in the industry don't really know what it is or how it can really help their project, um, including you know, industry veterans. So uh, we're hoping to shed some light on that today. Um, let me start by introducing our panel. Um, we have uh, Gillian Gouffain, uh, Glenfield Payne, Chris Che, and Andy Chris. Um, Gillian, why don't we start with you? Why don't we uh, get an introduction from you, please? Yeah. Um... 
Hi, I'm Julian. Um, I, I do mostly commercial and advertising audio, but um, I come from a background in, in film and also production. I've kind of been doing um, film work since high school. I was in a high school program and I transitioned into NYU and uh, kind of found a love of microphones and that there. I, um, I got in through production sound, being on set, um, kind of getting to learn all the different roles and then worked my way up into post. Um, right after school, I went to work with Marco and George at C5's Foley stage out in uh, Northvale, New Jersey, uh, doing big, big Hollywood uh, Foley sessions, which was the most fun. I don't know why I ever left. Um, that's like the dream job. Um, and then I went, I helped some friends start a little post shop in um, Midtown, New York. And I've kind of bounced to a couple different, um, a different, couple different studios since then. And now I'm at a place called Sonic Union and just doing film and, and commercial work, uh, sound design and mixing mostly. That's great. Yeah, welcome aboard. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Glenn, let's hear from you, please. Figured the sound guy would know to unmute himself. <laughs> um, so I uh, got started. Uh, well, really, I wanted to start when I was about eight and I saw Star Wars Episode Four. Um, it was the most amazing thing that I had experienced on a screen. Uh, I remember my dad and I watched it three times in a row. It was my introduction to Dolby. Um, I remember saying, Dad, is that the subway beneath us? As the Imperial Cruiser is going by, and he's like, no, that's Dolby. <laughs> um, uh, basically, I um, kind of kept this interest in the back of my mind, went to college, uh, wanted to record bands, uh, uh, ended up in the theater program at Carnegie Mellon. Um, when I got out, I was building scenery and I finally met someone who knew someone who uh, arranged for me to meet uh, Bill Nicholson at Sound One in New York, <clears throat> where he told me, don't worry, kid, your resume is going right in the top. <laughs> I was like, yeah, that's in the garbage. Uh, but fortunately, in a way out, I ran into uh, Kevin Lee at the elevator and he said, why don't you go down to 40 acres? Um, and I walked in, I got lucky, they just fired their intern. And my first job in post was interning on uh, Malcolm X. Um, I had met with Skip Lee, let's say at, uh, too many Lees, uh, at C5 before I had went to 40 Acres and he had told me, oh yeah, we got this job coming up in a few months. Uh, so I kept telling everyone while I was there, oh, I'm gonna work on the post sound when you guys are get ready for that. So uh, four months later, they're like, hey, aren't you supposed to be at C5? Um, so my stupidity of thinking, oh, there really is a job waiting for me ended up working out because I was on the job in another area and I ended up getting shuttled over to C5 uh, where I spent the next nine years uh, working with such amazing directors as uh, the Coen brothers, Spike, uh, Scorsese, um, John Sales, it was wonderful, you know, and again, like, why did I leave? Um, but, you know, every once in a while you need to change your pace. I uh, ended up working out of Sound One uh, until they uh, closed. Uh, and uh, now I'm here at Harbor Picture Company, uh, where, you know, I get to work with the same caliber of amazing directors. Um, I branched out into TV over the past few years. There's just so much of it in New York. Um, I'm lucky that I work with such amazing um, and uh, generous co-workers. We're constantly sharing information. Did you hear about this new plugin? Let me show you how I do this. Um, it's great to be here at a place like Harvard where they're like, yeah, sure, go ahead, use the studio, you know, go ahead and learn it. Um, so um, I've gone from cutting sound effects to supervising uh, when the technology allowed us to do more in our edit rooms, I really kind of started mixing as I was editing. Um, and then basically 
I ended up being bored on the stage. <laughs> so I said, hey, you know, maybe I can, you know, mix some effects because I've already kind of mixed them. So I started um, mixing effects mo mainly on films that I had supervised. Um, I did uh, mix effects on a TV show that I was just a mixer on, and that was interesting. Um, it was really the first time that I was mixing material that I had not touched before. Uh, so that was, uh, that was, I was like, oh, this is a lot harder when you don't prepare it <laughs> beforehand. Um, <laughs> all right, I think that's, that's it for now. I'll let Brian hand it off to someone else. Yeah, that's great, Glenn, thanks. Um, let's go to Chris Che. Chris, introduce yourself, please. Hey, how's it going? I'm Chris. Um, most people call me Che. Uh, so, uh, yeah, like, essentially, I've always wanted to be a mixer from the get-go. Um, going to school, always kind of had that idea. Um, originally thought I was going to go into music as a studio engineer or a front-of-house engineer. And I feel like most mixers that I know uh, come kind of kind of come from some kind of musical background and stuff like that but uh i got smart i guess <laughs> and realized that i gotta make a living <laughs> uh so i kind of uh decided to kind of uh drop back away from music and kind of figure out like all right how can i kind of still do this but in a different format and kind of befriended uh film students in school uh, i went to ithaca and through there, worked on production, which I hated. <laughs> um, but it was, I had to do it, so I did it. And then afterwards, uh, that exact film that I was working on, uh, the other kids were like, hey, you, you like to mix, right? And I was like, yeah, um, yeah, I can, I'm down. <laughs> um, so I decided to mix. I had no idea what I was doing, because um, I had no idea you mix a film. At the time, so uh, kind of <clears throat> got introduced uh, to some of the alumni and kind of figured out like, oh, what does this entail? Like, what are my responsibilities? Like, what am I even paying attention to? Do I even touch anything? <laughs> uh, so from there, kind of uh, led my kind of drawn uh, attention to uh, becoming a recording mixer, and really kind of piqued my focus on that and got into the. Uh, production audio production program at Ithaca and did that whole shebang and then uh, for my last year I went to LA and interned out there and worked at a small post studio called Monkeyland there and interning and um, kind of moved my way up slowly <laughs> and then um, towards my end of the time there I had to come back and graduate and I was like all right cool like I got a nice position out in LA and I'll like go back out there once I'm all settled up in New York. And so my intention of coming back to New York was just like kind of a wrap up uh, kind of trip more than anything to pack up and go back. Um, but in the meantime, I was like curious about kind of the post scene in New York and found uh, through the internship I had when I was at Ithaca, um, the studio owner actually worked for a soundtrack in Boston and he reached out to me. He's like, what are you doing? And I was like, oh, I'm trying to find an internship to kind of just kill some time while I'm still in New York. And he was like, hey, why don't you reach out to the soundtrack? I'll put in a word for you. And um, sh short story, I went in, got an internship there, um, moved my way up there and completely just was like planning on staying only for six months as an intern. And then three months down the road, they offered me a full-time gig. And I was like, oh, uh, yeah, uh, I'll take it. <laughs> uh, I was going to say no to a full-time job. Uh, especially when you're come, just coming out of school. So I uh, kind of stayed there and worked my way up as like a ADR assistant first. And then from there um, as a kind of a stage tech for the, all the mixers there. And one of the big reasons why I did decide to stay at Soundtrack and <clears throat> continue on with that and scrap going to LA was because of the mixtures that were working out of Soundtrack. Um, Tom Fleshman, Dominic Tavella, and Bob Shafalis were three of the kind of the kind of uh, highlighted mixers out of the facility. And I was like, all right, this would be stupid of me for not to kind of take this opportunity and, and just bet on it <laughs> and see if it works out. Um, and luckily it worked out uh, over the years. I became uh, Dominic Tavella's assistant and kind of becoming his stage tech and, and kind of working the stages there. And, and uh, 
kind of essentially became the kind of the the guy that when it came to the stages, it, it all kind of came through me, <laughs> and it, which was super valuable because it made me very sound on the technical capacity and and allowed me the opportunity to be with the mixers and kind of see their approaches on the creative side and, and really get there. Um, so I stayed at Soundtrack for like six years. Uh, in that time, kind of got my own projects through Soundtrack or through kind of my own networking and essentially kind of uh, picked up the scraps <laughs> around and just kind of worked with it and, and did my best with it. Um, and luckily, like, it was, it was great to have great people around at the studio and uh, people that know soundtrack um, know that like it was a place where a lot of folks come through and and I got a lot of exposure to different editors and how they were working and just as an observant as a as kind of a fly on the wall um, and that was kind of a super valuable aspect of being a stage tech and then uh, through that um, kind of really kind of uh, really uh, accelerated my kind of mixing career and really focusing on that and uh, eventually I ended up starting mixing with uh, Dom and kind of towards uh, uh, recently in the past couple of years kind of just started mixing with him and learning from him and that was a super ex great experience because uh, he there was a fair amount of chewing me out <laughs> uh, which is the most valuable experiences that I had because it was the actual critique was where I was like oh oops <laughs> um, so that was a really cool aspect and yeah so I was there for six years and then recently kind of made the transition over the freelance and kind of wanted to get more exposure working with other mixers and uh, recently I was been working over at Warner Brothers uh, and kind of working with Skip out there and kind of learning from him a bit and as well as Andy being around there uh, just kind of taking whatever cues I can get and what kind of any kind of growth. <laughs> well, thank you, Chris. I'm going to take that as an opportunity to uh, to get right into Chris's introduction. So, Andy, um, Andy, Chris, uh, if you could uh, get us a little introduction for yourself, please. Thanks, Brian. Uh, hey, everybody. Thank you for um, showing up today. It's not every day we get a chance to talk about what we do. Um, just want to give you a little uh, background of myself, how I ended up mixing. Um, growing up, I love movies, and uh, you know, I think like Glenn, um, it was when I saw Star Wars that uh, all the lights went off in my head that um, you know these were uh, something I really wanted to be a part of. Um, but I think um, for me, it was mostly trying to figure out how they got made. I mean, they look so great up on the screen, but how how do they get put together? Um, also, I grew up a computer nerd and uh, was amazed at how quickly they were changing the way people lived and and how we worked. Um, so when I got to college, I studied film, uh, I had an emphasis on uh, film production, but I also took a lot of computer programming classes and computer applications. Um, and so when I uh, was done with college, I thought, all right, I should go to grad school if I want to keep, uh, you know, working in the film. So of course I applied to NYU and uh, got rejected. And uh, my undergraduate teacher at the time said, just move to New York, just get a job in film, it'll be the best film school ever. Um, so that seemed a little daunting to me, a uh, young man growing up in the Midwest, but uh, I figured that since I had a strong background in computers and I could type fast, uh, I'd probably, it'd probably work out okay. Um, so with that uh, computer degree, I was able to get a job working uh, in phone tech support for uh, the Wall Street brokerage firm, Smith Barney. I ended up working nights uh, supporting the West Coast branches and their uh, after hours operations. Uh, that let me uh, have my days free to try to break into New York film scene. Uh, at the time, my, f my film teacher from college had just completed a documentary uh, that was produced by James Seamus and Ted Hope, uh, who uh, founded Good Machine. And with her help, I was able to get an unpaid internship there. Uh, it was there that I was also exposed to the New York independent film world. That experience turned out to be invaluable probably way much more so than uh, going to film school ever would have been uh, since I interacted with so many different people working in the industry, the producers, directors, film editors, post-supervisors. Uh, and I really got a sense of what all those different positions were and the kinds of people that worked in those jobs. Um, Anthony Bregman, uh, he was a, a Good Machine staff producer. He was at the time post-supervising movie called Sense and Sensibility. 
uh, Ang Lee's Sense and Sensibility. Uh, they were editing at a small post facility called Spin Cycle Post. Uh, it turns out they were having problems uh, connecting to the printers. And Anthony suggested that I come over to see what's up since I was the computer whiz kid. Uh, well, it turns out they had been, uh, they took a cable and they staple gunned it to the wall and it prevented all the computers from seeing the printer. So naturally I just ran a new cable. And then the next day the office manager called me and said, um, you know, what do you want to do? And I said, I don't know. I've been, you know, thinking of getting into post-production. And she said, great, come on over here and please be our intern. So of course I said yes, because uh, production was not really something I was all that interested in doing. Uh, so after about two more weeks of fixing more computer issues, they hired me as a staff assistant, uh, since it was clear that the picture and sound editors working there really needed some tech support. Uh, it was the first experience that many of them ever had with computers since uh, all the editing up to that point was pretty much done on analog tape and cutting actual film. Uh, so everything at SpinCycle was uh, being done on Avids. And at the time, Avids were really only used in commercials, uh, short form programming. So there was plenty of uh, problems that came up when they were trying to be used to edit a, a feature film. You know, they had drives running out of space. We had the output to tape, which never worked. Um, everything kept going out of sync. You know, the editors would back up work and not know where it went. Uh, so it enabled me to, uh, I was pretty busy over there. Um, and in a matter of days, I found myself recording Foley for Sense and Sensibility. I had no idea what a Foley even was. Um, but I do remember going to the premiere of the film and when I heard the sound of Hugh Grant putting his cup uh, on a table, and I realized that was, that was the sound that I did. Uh, I was hooked and uh, you know, saw firsthand all the glorious things that you can do with sound in a movie. Uh, so after, uh, after I left Spin Cycle, I, um, I went freelance. And uh, during that time, I developed some relationships with some of the sound supervisors and post supervisors in, in the city. Uh, that allowed me to find work in other films. <laughs> Uh, I worked in and out of uh, other facilities in New York, like C5, Gun for Hire, Goldcrest. Um, and while I was there, I would edit and, you know, we'd supervise the sound. Uh, and then we'd usually take those tracks and mix them at Sound One. At the time, Sound One was the largest post facility on the East Coast. And it was the epicenter for almost every feature film, primetime television shows being finished in New York, um, you know like Glenn, uh, everyone who is anyone worked there. Uh, I always look forward to the days that I'd be on one of those stages since that's where the magic happened. You know, that's where all the hard work and all the little pieces of sound that we did uh, morphed into the final product, you know, and that's, that's where I got hooked on mixing. Um, but, you know, mixing still only happened in the domain of the large facilities like Sound One, um, you know, because they had, they had the proper equipment. Um, about that time, I, I began to dabble in mixing some like reality TV shows and uh, some documentaries uh, just in my edit room on Pro Tools. And, you know, I had a little bit of success doing that. And then they, um, I was uh, approached by Blake Lay and he said, um, can you mix the first couple episodes of this uh, cop show I just got uh, called The Wire? And uh, I was like, okay, sure. You know, um, we did at C5 and uh, the season, it went well. Um, after that, we moved to Sound One and we did the next season there. And uh, as soon as that was over, they offered me a full-time uh, staff mixer position, which was like a dream come true. Uh, because it was there that I was able to develop my skills as a mixer. I was able to work along with uh, some greats like Lee Dichter, Dominic Devella, Riley Steele, Michael Berry, you know, and, and there, there were many others. It was a great time. Um, I was there for about 10 years until they closed uh, and I was mainly mixing episodic television shows and uh, the occasional low budget film or I would uh, work as a second mixer on some of the bigger studio films that would go through Sound One. Um, I was, I've been able to see a lot of changes in the industry over the years and work with some incredible filmmakers and post professionals. Um, you know, really got to cut my teeth at Sound One and uh, those experiences led me to the work I'm currently doing, which is mainly mixing episodic television. Uh, you know, peak TV as it's being called has led to an explosion of work in New York. And uh, I consider myself incredibly lucky to have had all these past experiences and to be able to leverage the skills and relationships I formed and with the great help from all the technology too, 
to keep up with the uh, demanding workload and deliver quality sounding shows to very happy producers. So that's great. Andy. Ryan. Yeah, thank you. Um, so just as a broad observation about everybody's uh, career path, um, it seems like nothing is uh, a direct path. It's so everybody's got some little meanderings this way or that way. Um, but it really sounds like um, talking to people and networking with people has really led to most of your careers. Um, and uh, that's pretty impressive. And just so anybody out there listening that's sort of new into the PNYA, um, keep that in mind. Talk to people and, uh, you know, share your thoughts and uh, ask questions because uh, clearly every one of these panelists um, ended up where they did, not only through their sheer talents, but through their ability to talk to other people. So just as an observation. Um, we got a good sense of everybody, like how you sort of got to your positions uh, and where you are, but what are some of the um, challenges that you faced, some of the darker spots in trying to get to this end result? Um, you know, what are the, some of the career challenges that you guys have faced um, to, to get here? Um, Glenn, why don't we start with you, please? Uh, sure. Um, I, I remember, um, you know, Andy mentioned uh, the technology has changed and allowed us to do a lot more. Um, I remember yeah, trying to, um, somewhere in the mid, late 90s, I was kind of getting burned out because as an editor, um, I was fortunate that by the time I started editing, I started on computers. I started editing on Sonic Solutions. Then I went to uh, uh, Avid Audio Vision and then Pro Tools. You know, it used to be called Slow Tools and then it got better. Um, <laughs> um, but basically what I would do is I would um, assemble like banks of sounds um, and there really wasn't much that I could do, um, especially in the beginning with, um, with Sonic Solutions. I was loading sounds in analog. Um, I remember Toast came out and it was like, oh my God, I can load a sound from a CD in a matter of seconds as opposed to playing it in real time. But um, really I was like loading sounds in on an analog board, doing some EQ on the way in. Um, and then I would you know, make that sound match the image. Um, I do remember a funny thing where at uh, one point someone was like, I was like, oh, I don't have enough cars going, you know, right to left. And they're like, dude, just reverse the panning. <laughs> it was like, I was like, oh, wow. I, duh. Um, but at a certain point, I, I kind of got bored because all I could do was lady sounds in, do a general EQ, set some general levels, and then give it to a mixer. Um, and a lot of the time I wasn't able to go to the mix. It wasn't in the budget. Uh, I was lucky enough to go on to another job. Um, and I would like go finally see the end product. And I was usually pretty happy, but I was like, oh, I kind of wish things turned out that way. Or we get phone calls like, hey, you know, you didn't cut any crickets here. And I was like, dude, like, did you not look at the cue sheets? And they're like, no, we don't look at cue sheets. And I was like, then why am I making them? Um, but the technology changed and all of a sudden in Pro Tools, automation came in and it worked. So now I was able to not only set a general level, but I could ride that level up and down. I could pan things. I could do EQ that wasn't baked in. So I could actually do something and go really far because if I went too far, they could undo it as opposed to being stuck with it. Um, and that just really like allowed me to be creative. And uh, I really thought like, oh, maybe I set my, my, um, my uh, you know, where I wanted to be too low <laughs> because I kind of got bored at a certain point in my, uh, I don't know, is it 20s or early 30s? And then once automation came in, I, I just was able to flourish again and, and refine myself. So for me, that was, that's really was the biggest challenge and, and still remains the biggest challenge is, um, you know, just staying um, excited about it. I mean, this is, you know, I still say it's, it's pretty amazing that, you know, I get to do this for a living. Um, you know, I remember my kids thought that I just watched movies all day. 
Um, and then when they finally came to a stage and they saw that I just watched little bits of movies all day, um, it's still a hell of a lot better than uh, what I think most people do. You know, I, I feel, um, you know, honored to, you know, work on something that so many people get to see and um, enjoy. Yeah, absolutely. That's great. Thank you, Glenn. Um, Julian, with, uh, with commercials, um, how, what are the, what are some of the workplace challenges that you have trying to get spots out the door um, and, and, you know, meeting the needs of, you know, broadcast spec or streaming spec and uh, the desires of the, uh, you know, the director for whatever it is? Um, Well, I, I want to talk about two yeah. Uh, two two challenges. Um, to answer yours first, I, I think um, a huge challenge in commercial world is time. I mean, there's it's it's either you have so much time that you'll get lost in a creative field of nothing. You you might have eight hours to do a thirty second spot, um, or um, sometimes in television and commercial work as well. I've, I've had to turn around 45 minute shows in eight hours. So um, balancing time and budget and staying focused, um, however it may be, I, I'm a person who I like to start a project and keep moving forward in the project, literally forward in the timeline, um, doing kind of quick base passes and then coming back to it and filling it in and filling it in, just so that I know at the end of it, I. I got something on every part of it. Um, I know some people like to work slow and, and just kind of finish things. Um, so I think that's a challenge. Um, there's a lot more money in commercial, but there's also, uh, there's people are a lot more um, tight about their money in commercial. So balancing how much time you have versus how much time you want uh, can be, can can be challenging. You have producers constantly. I think in film, at least in my experience in film uh, and television, it's a little more you're on your own. You get the project. You have a certain amount of time, and you um, can kind of do it as you as you see fit. And in commercial, you're sitting in a room with 17 clients, all breathing down your neck, wondering why their three minute spot isn't fully done already, and they got into the room 10 minutes ago. So that can, that can be a real challenge, um, just managing client expectations for that. Um, but I wanted to, just because I think it's important for young and women uh, as a minority in this business, one of my biggest challenges over the years has just been being a woman. Um, I cannot tell you how many times a client has come into the room and uh, thinking I'm the the receptionist showing them to the room uh, and then said to me, oh, you're the mixer, but you're a girl. (laughs) Um, So I think a big challenge with that is uh, just keeping your cool and just being like, yep, well, you know, let's just sit down and get to it. And then proving them wrong in it. Um, It can be very, it's a a male dominated industry and uh, that's fine. I love my brothers and all of uh, the guys that I work with are, are fabulous. Um, but it can be intimidating to be a woman um, and, uh, or a minority, I would say, in this business, which in this case is, is being a woman. At, at this latest job that I just came to at Sonic, um, it was a huge uh, hurdle for me to to go into that, I had been working on my own, running a department for six years, and the thought of going into a back into a studio with other engineers that were all guys that had all been in it. A lot of them came from Sound One. They know all these guys. Um, had been in it a long time. Was really intimidating because I was going to be the new the new mixer and the chick mixer, um, and that's kind of a mental hurdle. You just have to like. I don't know, it's put, put out of your mind because in a way it's also, um, I've learned to use it as um, a selling point. It's like, you know, I'm kind of this novelty that people are like, well, I gotta see what that's all about um, and not taking offense to that and uh, just getting in and doing the work and um, yeah. Yeah, 
That's great. I mean, that leads to a, another thought that, uh, you know, we wanted to address with this panel. When we were putting uh, our selection people together, um, we wanted to put together as diverse a panel as possible. And what's really surprising in a city like New York or even in LA, um, you know, how much lack of diversity there is on the mixed stage. Um, it's, a, it's a surprising challenge. Um, and so um, why is that to anybody on the panel? Why do we feel like this traditionally has been a, um, you know, a male, white male dominated career path? Um, and how do we introduce um, opportunities for more women and BIPOC in sound post-production in general or in mixing in general? Um, you know, I know that, uh, yeah, it's it it was it's presented itself an interesting challenge, so I you know I I, 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 I might just in, but anybody else please I'd love to hear thoughts. Um, I I might not be able to so much answer as why I I don't know why because I found um, I I found sound just the way all you know the guys in my film classes found sound so. Um, I, it, it might just be intimidating. I, I grew up as the only girl in my family. There's, I'm, I'm from brothers. So for me, walking into a room full of men was never intimidating for me. So maybe that's why it was a little different for me, but I can understand that it can be uh, challenging for some women to walk in to a company full of guys and say, I'm just gonna compete and I'm gonna get involved. Um, but I, I will say just like getting involved and doing it and using it to your advantage, um, it's, it's a hard thing. I, I, this is going to sound uh, weird, but uh, you kind of have to just like tamp down that part of you that says, I take offense, I need to speak out and just prove that through your work um, and just get in there. There were days I, I'll be the first one in, I'll be the last one to leave. I shouldn't have to do that, but I did it to prove that I can do it and that I can stand up with any of uh the, the mixers or the Foley guys or the editors or whatever job it might be that I'm on. Um, and just um, getting in there. And like I said, once I was in there, once I could prove that I could do this stuff, a lot of times it was like a novelty or it was a, I mean, novelty is not the right word, but um, you know, like this, it, it's a diversity that projects want to have. So as the minority, you might get opportunities to a job um, because they need to diversify the roster. And um, that's fine. I'll take it. And then I'll blow their socks off and I'll get the next job yeah. based on not being the minority, but. Absolutely. Um, does anybody else have any thoughts about um, how we can open up the doors better um, to the world of sound post-production, let alone uh, mixing? Um, I'll, I'll just say quickly, I, I think maybe one of the reasons uh, you know, why we see so few um, non-white males here is just people don't know about this. Um, you know, when you think of film or TV, you think actors, directors, writers. Not many people think, oh, there's a guy that parks cars. You know, there's people that build sets. Um, there's a guy that holds a microphone. <laughs> um, people just don't think about that. So until there are more people um, like me talking to people like me or more women talking to women, then people won't know to go out and look for work in this field. Um, and then also the work is word of mouth. So if you don't know people who don't look like you and you happen to be white, then you're only going to hire white people. I mean, it is great. This panel is myself. We have a woman. We have, oh my God, the white guy, Andy. <laughs> we have Chris. You know, it's fantastic. Um, you know, it's, it's great to just do the work. Um, I, yeah, I don't want to, I, I, but I think maybe how we can also, you know, this is one thing that, um, you know, I've talked to the union about is we have to get the apprentice position, position back. Yeah. Um, there's really, I don't know how um, <clears throat> kids are getting started today. I was so lucky that I was able to go to C5 um, and be an apprentice. You know, I interned at 40 Acres for four months for free, and then I was at C5 and I was a union apprentice. 
and then I became a union assistant, and then I became a union editor, and it's fantastic. Um, so we gotta we gotta figure out a way to get that position back, um, so that yeah. we we open up the path for new people to get into get into the field and get into the union in the field because it is fantastic being in a union. Yeah, you know? yeah, I agree with all of this. Um, those are very good points, Glenn. Thank you. Um, so to bring it back a little bit to mixing, um, how have any of your personal experiences, um, where you grew up, uh, life choices, traveling, any of these things, how have they uh, influenced your creative process? Um, you know, the mix really is a creative thing that gets sort of relegated to a shorter schedule at the end um, of a project. Um, but it really is 50% of our movie going experience um, that a lot of people don't really understand. Um, so how have some of the things that you've all lived through um, brought about the creativity that you bring to the mix stage? Um, Chris or Andy, I'll let you uh, jump in with this. Yeah, <laughs> um, in terms of, yeah, like I grew up in Queens and um, kind of, and went to LA kind of where it's kind of the the kingdom of this industry essentially as most people kind of consider it um and just kind of the in terms of the creative process wise it's it's all about kind of what the film is really more than anything and in, in terms of the approach of the creativeness it's it's tends to be kind of everyone's got their own kind of way of doing it and such and um personally it's it's not like anything like specific where i grew up or anything like that but kind of how i grew up i guess more than anything um coming from like a uh, immigrant family um it's uh it's always been it kind of comes to the case of uh, it touches on the point of like what kind of challenges i had it's one of the biggest challenges i had was just getting into the industry and and as someone as younger especially um that's was the kind of the more block than anything um so it's like growing up it's like uh, my folks are kind of self-made folks and kind of took their cue as to like, all right, this is what I got to do. Tough it out and just, and get the opportunity. And, and in the meantime, um, while I'm not actually doing it, still do it to make sure I'm prepared. Um, it's, it's kind of the, it's, it was always the kind of case for me where I always kind of preemptively prepared for what was coming up or what could possibly come up and, and then the creative side, it, it really kind of flows in with that, where when you're technically kind of really sound on something and feeling more confident, the creative kind of just naturally kind of flows out. And like with every film, it's like, granted, like, I do get a lot of independent films and especially like, like friends from school or something like that, independent projects, it's all shot in the city. <laughs> and like kind of, it does, I do have an advantage, like kind of growing up around here and kind of knowing the, the areas and stuff like that, that I'm able to kind of design these, these kind of backgrounds and, and kind of mix it in a way where it, it's, it's sensible for a, like as a New York film, you know what I mean? Um, and it's the same thing with any kind of other, dependent on the film, um, like kind of the nature of it, and what's the direction it's going and what's the kind of the focal points. Um, and that's kind of the, the backing to it all, you know what I mean? Where it, it that really drives the direction to where you want to go and, as a creative and, and kind of taking your experiences, of course, to kind of implement and, and to make it work. Yeah, absolutely. Andy, do you have any thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I would say, you know, when I tell people what I do, uh, they automatically assume that I must be some musician and that I have some great musical skills, but I have no musical skills at all. I can't play an <laughs> instrument. Uh, I can't read music, um, you know, and then I'm sitting behind what is, you know, classically been like a musical instrument. So um, it's been always a bit of a challenge to kind of put that aside and say like, what's important here? What we're doing is we're, we're trying to tell stories. You know, people come to us to help them, you know, weave all of these intricate parts of their projects together so I have to be the arbiter of, okay, this is what's going to make this story get told. So, you know, if the dialogue is important here, then we need the dialogue to be important. And if somebody's trying to tell you, like, the music has to be louder here, you know, you have to foster a discussion in the room about, you know, what's important. So, you know, I actually think my lack of musical ability has allowed me to take, you know, an agnostic uh, 
part in the process of, of creating a soundtrack to, uh, you know, a film or a TV show, uh, you know, and to really think about what the viewer is going to think is important. You know, is it going to be, you know, the sound of this guy walking through the forest or is it going to be, you know, a song that somebody paid way too much money for that they really want to hear more in the background of a bar, you know, when a writer's telling me like, no, this is, this is all about, you know, the, the words in the scene. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's really great. True. Um, uh, Glenn or Julian, do you have any uh, uh, things you uh, want to share about personal experiences and, and how it shaped what you do? Uh, I was just going to say, um, kind of riffing off what Andy and, and Chris said, um, is I, I grew up as a dancer. So I, I think I found like rhythm and in, in that and in, in it's so inherent to what we do. Um, but I have no musical background. I can't play an instrument. I can't read music or anything like that. But what dance taught me uh, from a very young age was uh, constructive criticism. And I think this is a really hard thing for anybody in any creative field. Um, you know, we're as, as the last step in, in creating a film or an ad or whatever it may be. Um, we're really bringing somebody else's vision to life. Um, now we're brought on, hopefully, because the, the director or the producer, whoever trusts our vision, but it is theirs ultimately. And so we have to fo foster, um, as Andy said, this, uh, this discussion in the room and take their criticism. One of the, the most amazing things someone ever said to me is you have to learn how to drown your puppies, which is the first thing. I always take a project, I design it, I'm like, that was the, that was the sound. And that's the first thing they're gonna take out. That, that, that you, the thing you loved most was the first thing they're gonna take out. And you have to learn to, to hear that and say, okay, um, that wasn't what they were wanting, not get defeated, not say, oh, well, they didn't like my stuff. Um, and then go back to the drawing board and start again and, and do that without skipping a beat. And um, I think my background in dance kind of taught me how to do that um, and, and become a part of their process while uh, knowing that a lot of times they're going to come in and say like, I didn't like that. that, that wasn't what we were going for. And you just have to say, okay, cool. I can come up with something different. Um, the creative writing block in sound is, is very real. Imposter syndrome is very real. And we have to learn how to um, walk past that and get to the next step to bring these, these projects to life. Yeah, that's a really great answer. Thank you. Um, Chris Peterson uh, has some questions uh, from our audience here. So uh, Chris, if you wanna put the questions out, we'll figure out who's best to answer them. Sure, thank you, Brian. Um, a lot of good ones. So while facilities have been closed, are any of you mixing from home and streaming or sharing the audio live with clients in real time so you can keep safe with social distancing? And if so, how? Um, I have a feeling all four of you have been doing some version of this. So um, who feels like jumping in? Who's got a good example and uh, wants to share? Andy, I know you've been going to broadcast. Yes. So, um, you know, we, um, you know, since we mix shows after they get shot, um, we are, uh, you know, like everyone's been saying, we're the last step in the process. So even though production was shut down, I guess in like March, uh, we've still had some content to keep mixing. Uh, I was busy up until about last week um, delivering the show, The Good Fight for CBS All Access. And, you know, on that show, we've already developed a way that um, the, the executive producer never even came into the mixing stage once. Uh, I don't think he's been in the room in, in about three years uh, on that show. Uh, what we've always done is send him a, a quick time uh, that comes from the mix we do on the stage. And that's how he reviews it. Uh, normally, I and the post supervisor and some of the sound editors and the other mixer will be on the stage together creating the mix that we send to him. Um, but since we couldn't do it this time, uh, I would get mixes from the second mixer. He was doing the effects. I'd blend them with the dialogue and the music that I'd get from the music editor in LA. The composer was working in Angora, and you know, uh, everything got 
put together. First, I would put it together on a laptop, just in headphones. Uh, and then I went to, luckily at, at Warner Brothers, we have the whole building. So we're able to control the access. And I was able to get in, put the mix together on a stage, uh, send off our quick times to everybody, to the music department, to the executive producer, the post supervisors. Uh, everybody took overnight, they listened to it. And then in the morning, I would get all of their notes. Uh, so I would then incorporate all the notes into the mix and then send out versions of the, uh, the new mix to everybody so they could do the final approval. And then I would do that sometimes uh, on the laptop, just sitting at the kitchen table. Or if uh, I had the time, I I'd be able to go back into the studio. Um, and then once everybody was happy with the mix, uh, I was uploading the final mixes to CBS, like right from my laptop in, in, the, uh, in our living room. So uh, I don't want this to be the future, but you know, if it has to be, there's a way, you know, it, there's a way we can still figure out how to get this done. You know, I think all of us are, are pretty creative in our, in our abilities to figure out problems and how to overcome them. Uh, and thank God for technology. I mean, you know, there's no way we could do this uh, if it weren't for, you know, sitting at this same laptop and, uh, you yeah. know, mixing the shows. Absolutely. Uh, that's really good. Um, does anybody else have a, a different workflow that they've been working with? Or, um, Julian, did you, was that a hand yeah. raise? Was that yeah, just, yeah. 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 Uh, I was going to let someone else, I feel like I'm no, talking absolutely. a lot. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, I, I am working with several clients shipping anywhere from one to five projects a day um, from home. Uh, our company set us up with interfaces if we didn't have them. Um, I, have a, I have a small mix stage I'm sitting at right here. You can't see it. It's behind you. Um, but I, uh, I work with clients in real time with projects just as I would if they were in the room. Um, so we are connecting to talent uh, using a platform called Source Connect, um, where if our talent that we have booked for the job doesn't have it, we have a team that will set them up with it. We will ship them all the gear. We will get them set up uh, to record from home, as well as walk them through building a home studio or uh, turning their closet into a voiceover booth. Uh, it's been pretty good so far, actually. Um, our biggest complaint is all the talent keep talking into the back side of the mic. So um, yeah. that sucks. But, yeah. uh, um, and so I have clients on Zoom and I have them coming into my Pro Tools system, going out to the Source Connect so that they can talk directly to the talent. They can hear the talent. And it's, it's almost like the talent's just in the studio, in the booth. Um, it's, it's almost seamless real time for, for um, situations like that via records. Um, and then if we're doing, if we're getting into, um, I'm also, we're mixing, um, me and a couple other mixers here and sound designers at Sonic are doing an anime series uh, and we're all sound designing it together. So we're using, um, we're using YouTube Live and a third party program in between our Pro Tools system and YouTube that allows um, real time playback with no delays. So we can stream it with our clients. We can stream it and make notes, uh, time code accurate notes um, in real time with the mixer on, on, on one end, starting and stopping and adjusting and, and fixing. Um, and I've also been doing that with my commercial clients so that we can actually review in real time, make adjustments on the fly and then ship it out right then and there. So it's, it, I, I, I'm, I'm with Andy. I do not want to see this. I miss my clients. I miss my studio. I miss my coworkers. I want to go back to work, but um, it's pretty miraculous the way um, we can do it. That's pretty fantastic. Thank you. Um, Chris, next question, please. Yeah, kind of tagging on to that, do, do any of you see any of those workflow changes becoming permanent or are facilities reopening now that phase two is starting next week or what's the immediate outlook for the next, next few steps? Yeah, Glenn or Chris, I know that you guys have been going back and forth. Glenn, you're at Harbor right now. Um, how is that working? Um, so, you know, again, like Warner Brothers, we don't own the whole building, but we have whole floors. Um, so my entrance is a door right off the street. Um, I've been in a few times. Uh, I've driven in. Uh, it was great initially. Um, 
well, actually, I was just really coming in to cannibalize the place in the beginning. <laughs> um, uh, but this past last week and this week, I've driven in. Um, you know, now I have to pay for parking. Um, I biked in. Um, so it's, you know, I'm not dealing with the subway part. Um, once I get here on this floor, there's me and one other person. Um, I'm in a studio by myself. He's in his own studio and I am not the most technically adept person, but there's someone I call and they're able to get into my system from their home. And, you know, I see them moving the mouse around and they can talk me through the buttons that I need to push on the board if, you know, they can't do everything on the computer. Um, so that's great. We're able to be safe. Um, you know, I've been working at home in my living room on headphones. Uh, you know, Bushwick is not the quietest neighborhood, so <laughs> there are problems with that. Um, I also have two teenagers, a wife and a dog. Um, so you know, it's hard enough being focused anyway. Um, it's definitely hard with a dog that's like, oh, you're home, why not walk me all day long? Yeah. Um, but it is great that I can come in here. You know, we've got a sign-up sheet so that we know who's gonna be in here. Um, we can make sure that um, if someone else is gonna come in after me, then we can make sure to sanitize the room. Um, so, you know, we're able to figure out ways to get it done. Um, and right now we also have a mix going on um, at our, our largest stage where clients are able to in real time, you know, hear the mix in their own setups um, and communicate with the mixers. So, you know, we get it done. However it needs to happen, we find a way to get it done. I do want to um, come back. The only thing I really like about this is the commute. Yeah, but uh, I, I like working in my room with speakers instead of headphones, and um, and you know I actually got to the point where I was like, oh my god, I miss salad. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so um, I came back in and had a salad. There you go. That's great, uh, Chris. Next question, please. Yeah, is it? Um, many of you have mentioned notable people that you've worked under. Is it more important? In, in terms of getting ahead to work under certain notable people or to kind of go for that full-time job at, at a company that's that may be interested in hiring you that's a really good question um chris j uh we heard that you jumped right into a full-time position but you got the chance to work under a bunch of fantastic people and still are <clears throat> How, what, what are your thoughts on this? Um, yeah, it's kind of, it, it, it kind of all intertwines, you know what I mean? Um, like for me, like I said, like the whole reason why I passed up in kind of a very high potential job position in, in LA is because of the people that were present, you know what I mean? The talent that was present at Soundtrack and that was the main reason why I kind of was like, all right, I'm gonna drop this and take the risk on this because of, of the talent, you know what I mean? Um, like, especially for folks that are kind of just starting out, and that's where I was, um, the biggest thing for me was to actually have the first-hand experience, you know what I mean? And seeing the people and kind of how they approach things and the way they work um, from firsthand, you know, that's kind of the best experience you can ask for. Um, like, granted, like, yeah, like, uh, coming out of school or even, like, right while I was in school, um, uh, sound one was always the big thing. You know what I mean? Every, all of my classmates and everyone, we would always just talk about sound one and what it would be like to kind of move back, move to New York and, and work at sound one. Um, but it was, I think maybe my sophomore year or junior year in, when I was in school that, uh, that sound one closed. So I was like, oh, <laughs> uh -oh. Um, so yeah, like I really lucked out uh, by finding soundtrack and soundtrack was kind of a, it, it was a, complete chance uh, that like the studio owner that uh, the, the owner of the studio that I was working at in Ithaca, he was working in the Boston facility for soundtrack. And that's how I kind of linked up. And when I checked out uh, the place, I was like, Oh, whoa, like saw the mixtures that were working there. And I was like, okay, um, I'm going for this. Um, and then, yeah. So for me, it was really, I picked the facility because of the town. Right. And, and also that's why it stuck around because the people that were there too and, and kind of the experience I was getting from 
having having those people available to me and, and them also kind of uh, being really generous and, and giving me opportunities, especially. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'll take an opportunity to answer this question a little bit myself, just from an editor's perspective. Um, you know, uh, being freelance, it can be a real challenge to keep workflow coming in the door. Um, and sometimes, uh, you know, you aren't lucky enough to have uh, the next great thing knocking on your door. You're just lucky enough to have the next thing knocking on your door. Um, and so taking the time to perfect your own skill set uh, on any of the jobs that you get, I think, is, uh, is advancing your career, um, whether it's working under a big name or not. Um, people will recognize that you're working hard um, and working well for them, um, and that can only pay dividends. So I would say that it's a little bit of both. If you're lucky enough to work for excellent people, um, your exposure level will change, but the more that you can try and stay working, um, the better. So, uh, you know, even if it's not the best job, if you're doing your best job on it, um, that that really is improving your career, um, even if it doesn't, even if it's not a five-star credit on your resume. Um, so that's just another perspective on that. Um, Chris, do you have uh, another question? Uh, Chris Peterson. Julian, did you want to? Oh, I I was going to say, just to kind of combine with the last two said too, and another thing that's, I don't think it's necessarily always about the people you work with. I I, I did work with some, some big guys very early on, and then I went to smaller, um, smaller studios, some startups uh, for the first two places that I was at. And I think the most important thing, and it's something that I've struggled with, with interns or assistants that have come to work for me is um, just get in there. Just, just whatever, it, you know, if I'm there longer than you, you're not doing it right. If, um, you know, if you're not asking enough questions, if you're, um, you know, you, you have to put yourself in those positions. Um, that little tiny director, um, I worked with a, a director early on in my career uh, when I was in, in, in college even. Um, she's now Lena Dunham. She is now a huge star. And I worked on all her projects for free. I didn't treat them like they were anything different because they were free projects. Um, but you never know who's gonna be the next big thing. So always take every project, I think, and look at it as like just a good experience to either hone your craft, make new connections. Um, and then if you do get into a studio, um, just, you know, and you get the chance to sit in with a mixer, I can't tell you how many times an intern or an assistant such as sat next to me and not asked a single question. And I'm like, I am, I am the next step for you. I'm the key. Ask me everything. If you don't know that button I'm pressing, ask me what that button is. If you don't know why that file just turned a different color and slid two frames that way, ask me how it happened. Um, make yourself known and let, let us um, as a professional say, I need you to shut up right now. I got to listen to this. Um, but, you know, get active in the process. And then I don't think it matters where you are or who you're working with. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Um, yeah, Chris Peterson, next question, please. Sure, yeah, this will be our last one, but first I would like to announce that next week's topic is post-break forum, fix it in post, reimagining a more inclusive workplace. So, and for our last question, we've heard some great advice for younger folks like um, the status of apprentice programs, or um, internships, what are some other ways for young people to get their foot in the door? Is it just general networking or is it joining groups like the PNYA or working through a union or what, what are just some other good networking advice topics for young people? Well, I'll start with, uh, with my thoughts. Um, uh, yeah, uh, you should be doing anything and everything possible to put your name out there. Um, joining organizations like this, joining forums, um, LinkedIn, whatever it is, like put you get out there and start building a network however you can. Um, somebody will always talk to you and that will lead to another conversation. Um, and one of those conversations will lead to a job and one of those jobs will lead to a paycheck. And so, you know, networking I think is a, is a really crucial 
um, thing and learning how to network um, is really one of those things that, uh, you know, it's hard to teach, but I think it's definitely something that should be a class um, somehow uh, because it's a really good skill. Um, and it's, I think all of us can say that that's how we stayed in this career. Um, the people that we've met and the, the friendships that we've formed and the connections that we've made and the email addresses that we've collected and whatever it is, you know, staying in touch with people, I think is, a, is really crucial. Um, Glenn, yeah. Yeah, I, I would just say, um, take whatever position in the industry comes up. Um, like you might say, oh, I wanna be a mixer. Well, if you have an opportunity to work on a TV show or film or commercial in any capacity, take that. Um, I wanted to do sound. I went to theater school. I loved building scenery. I was building scenery for Broadway. And then I would go back to Pittsburgh where I went to school and work on films, uh, which was great because I could see my girlfriend and make more money. Um, <laughs> Um, but while working on a film in Pittsburgh, the uh, production manager, I'm not sure, um, just loved the fact that us carpenters were saving her so much money because we were just fast. Um, and we got talking and she asked what I wanted to do. And I told her I was interested in sound. And she said, oh, we have a cable man position coming up, which basically I would walk behind the boom guy and pull a cable. Um, it was paying half of what I was making as a carpenter. I said, I'll do it. I don't care. Um, she didn't believe me. Um, she got it pushed up to two thirds. I was like, I would have done it at half. Um, but she's the person who knew Skip Levesay um, and Bill Nisselson in New York. So while working on a film as a carpenter in Pittsburgh, I got two interviews set up for me when I came back to New York. And that led to the next 20 I don't even want to think about how long I've been doing this, something <laughs> years of my life um, doing this. So, you know, don't say I'm going to wait for the perfect opportunity to come along. They're all opportunities is what you do with them. Yeah, that's really true. Yeah. Um, yeah. I was just, just because he mentioned the boom op, one thing I was going to say about taking every job, the boom operator has, I was told this in school and I think it's the best job. If you're, if you're still young, if you're still in, in figuring it out, boom operator touches every single position on set. You have to know lighting, you have to know camera, you have to know actors blocking, you have to know what the mixer is doing. You have to know everything. Um, you can piss everyone off the most, but you also just, you get the most access to everything that's going on. And I think that's an excellent way to get in the door and figure out where you want to go from there. Um, and then just, just take the opportunity and nail it. And, you know, just like Glenn said, you know, he did good at carpentry and then that led to the next thing. It, it just go in and give it your all in whatever you're doing and, and people will remember that. Thank you so much everybody for uh, taking the time to spend and share your thoughts with everybody here at the PNYA. And um, yeah, uh, Chris Peterson, I think we wrap this up now. Is that true? Yes, that's it. Thanks so much panelists. Thank you, Brian. And we'll see you next week at this time. <laughs>